Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I've been interviewing fascinating and talented people from all walks of life for the past 20 years as an unscripted television producer, and before that, as a small-town sports reporter. Each episode, I talk to extraordinary people working in the entertainment industry, giving you an inside look at reality television, documentaries, and much more. If you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe, download, and rate the show with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Bleave.com and at Bleave Podcast. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. All right, let's get started. Today, my guest is Ethan Goldman. He is a creative executive with 20 years of experience developing and producing television and film, holding leadership roles at MTV, Ish Entertainment, Original Media, and Warrior Poets. He is currently president of Anchor Entertainment, a production company that collaborates with documentarians to tell timely and issue-driven stories. Yes. Over the course of his career, Ethan has developed multiple limited-run series, including Showtime's The Trade, which was an official selection of the 2018 Sundance Film Festival. Also, Culture Shock on A&E, which was a collection of five films from five filmmakers chronicling the untold stories behind watershed moments in pop culture that created a lasting impact on society. Other credits from Ethan include The Lost Kitchen, True Life, The Halo Effect, American Takedown, and LA Inc. at Anchor Entertainment. He is an executive producer on the Discovery Plus documentary Rebel Hearts, which chronicles a trailblazing group of nuns in the 1960s in Los Angeles who stood up to the patriarchy of the Catholic Church. That's a good one. All right, please welcome Ethan Goldman. Ethan, how are you, man? Doing well. Great to uh, finally talk with you. Exactly, man. We've been trying to do this forever, so it's good to chat. You've had a, a long career uh, doing a wide variety of stuff, as I listed many of those projects. You're now at Anchor Entertainment, and you're focusing on docs, and it's a great time to be in the doc business. Anchor has this project streaming on D- Discovery Plus right now called Rebel Hearts, which is, you know, you're taking on the, the Catholic Church, and most people don't know this. I went to 12 years of Catholic school, man. No kidding. I got a lot of stories. So when I heard you were doing uh, a documentary uh, about nuns who were taking on the patriarchy, I was excited, uh, but it's definitely you're dipping your toe in some uh, some controversial waters. Tell me a little bit about Rebel Hearts and why at Anchor you, you decided to take this project on. Yeah, sure. So I had met with a woman named Kira Karstensen, who's at a company called Merman. It's uh, Sharon Horgan's company, who you know from Catastrophe and Divorce. Incredible talent. Uh, she's she's both a, a showrunner, writer, um, but also on-screen talent. And she had told me about these nuns who... Um, had set up, they were, they were in the, the Hollywood Hills. Um, they were basically living in this convent, which later uh, we knew as being the convent that Katy Perry tried to buy. So I'd already heard about them on the news. And she tells me this incredible story of 60 years of, of fighting for freedom and equality for underrepresented groups. And, you know, having come across this 
very conservative cardinal who essentially was telling them what they should and shouldn't do as the Vatican is issuing Vatican II, uh, which was really saying, hey, we need to relate more to the people. We need to loosen our rules a bit. There needs to be something that allows us to connect with the masses more. And so, you know, they were shedding their habits and teaching progressive beliefs about what is right and what is just. And one of the sisters really speaks to it when she says, if you believe in something, you need to put your body on the line. And so they were practicing activism before it was even a thing. One of the sisters marched with MLK and Selma. They were involved in protests around uh, equal rights for women, um, for migrant workers. They've really sort of been there for anyone who needed help getting their voice heard. So she said, you know, we're trying to set this up. We're not sure if it's a, a film or if it's a series, but we've got this great director on board, Pedro Koss, whose work I knew. He had co-directed something at Sundance a few years ago with Keith Davidson called Bending the Ark. He came up as an editor working on some of my favorite films, Crash Reel, The Square, you know, Jahan and Kareem's film. Actually, it was Jahan's film. That's where she met Kareem. And, uh, you know, this guy was just a, an incredible storyteller. So I said, how can I help? Uh, so I met the rest of the team, Judy Corin, who's a well-known producer in the doc world, and Shawnee Isaac-Smith, who had been documenting these sisters for 15 years and, and in fact, had gotten wow. um, many of them to participate before, sadly, they, they passed. And so we were able to utilize right. a lot of that footage over the years to tell the definitive story of the Sisters of the Immaculate Heart. Now, why me, a, a, a Jewish kid from uh, Virginia? Uh, yeah. yeah, it's a good, yeah. <laughs> well, it, look, it's, I think, you know, we always talk about personal stories. It, what struck you about this story that made you go, I got to be a part of this? At Anchor, we're drawn to the unexpected stories you think you know, but it turns out have unexplored layers and untold perspectives, like finding the extraordinary and things that may otherwise seem just ordinary and normal. We'll even find commonalities, which to me is much more interesting and complex than pointing out our differences. I, I think this was one that I was shocked that I didn't know the story. You know, granted, I didn't grow up in LA, but this group of nuns were, they, they, they were written about in Life magazine. It was a cover of Life probably before my time, but they were known as the Pope's unruly flock. And they were this <laughs> papal order, right? They reported yeah. to the Pope, to the Vatican itself, but were basically being held down by a very conservative cardinal who uh, came as he was a Wall Street runner and had basically come to LA to make money for the schools. And so he ended up using all of them as free labor for uh, the parochial school system. And I, I think I was just drawn to the fact that these women were, as you say, uh, you know, they were trailblazing, they were fearless, they cared yep. about doing what was right, and yet we don't know anything about them. There was one particular sister who became a famous pop artist. Her name is Sister Corita Kent, and she after leaving the church, which you'll find out about in the documentary, she ended up moving to Boston and going on to have a very continued to have a very successful career selling pop art in these beautiful serographs and lithographs that she did. Um, I actually just bought one on eBay. 
they are out there. But she was doing <laughs> protest art that then became highly popularized through her use of brands, not unlike what Warhol was doing. Um, so when I heard the story, I just, I think I was blown away by my lack of knowledge. And I always like taking on projects that are going to teach me something new. Um, so I got to learn a lot about the Catholic church, which was fascinating, <laughs> good and bad. Um, but, but no, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a very hopeful message that comes out of this film and you don't need to know anything about Catholicism or even care right. about religion in order to appreciate this. And I think that's, that was what was at the heart of it for me. Let's tell this remarkable story uh, that very few people know. What did you know and think about nuns going in? And what's your impression of nuns or convents coming out? Because yeah. if you're not Catholic, you kind of have this very weird kind of notion of what a nun is. So I'm sure you kind of had no idea what you were getting into. No, I mean, I think the the portrayal of nuns in pop culture has always been these you know, highly disciplinary figures who were, were just teaching God's law and nothing really could could permeate that. And so you think of, you know, women in habits wrapping kids' knuckles with rulers and you hear these stories and, 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 you know, I obviously didn't grow up with that, but I saw it in films and I certainly saw it in, in media in a way that I think wasn't really an accurate portrayal of the grand majority. And this group of nuns who were doing just you know, incredible work, both in terms of the arts, but also in, they, they held more PhDs than all of the clergy combined in LA. I mean, yeah. incredibly smart and educated. And they were trying to, you know, one of the reasons they wanted to take the habits off is so that they could feel more modern and feel more relatable to their students. And so this completely smashed the stereotype and yet was another reason that I, I wanted to put this out there to maybe help dispel some of those myths about the the modern day nun. I think about my memories of the nuns that were my teachers as a child and I never got my knuckles hit with the rulers or anything, but they were pretty they were pretty strict. But we never really knew them as people. So I think that's important to kind of show them as three dimensional human beings. You yeah, know, I mean, this, this film does that in spades, and Pedro was really able to bring their human qualities to light. You know, it's inspiring. It's also, it's a little sad to think that 50 years later, they're still trying to overcome some of the same stigmas that exist in the church and some of the same restrictions. Did you face any opposition or pushback from the Catholic Church? No, no, we didn't. Um, there were a few organizations that we worked closely with, including the Immaculate Heart Community and the Corita Art Center, both of which are in our backyard in Hollywood. And they were they were very supportive, but we needed to work with the estates and figure out what we could use and couldn't use in this documentary without having to create something that we couldn't afford to make. 
one of the things I, I've had a couple of doc filmmakers on here, and I always I always um, get fascinated by how these things get to whether it's a streamer like Discovery Plus or gets into you know a theatrical release or something like this. What was behind the decision to go to Discovery Plus? How did it end up you know you know going this route? I'm sure it was a long path to where it ended up. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was, I think, four, almost four years in the making for Kira and Pedro and Judy, it was over five. And for Shani, it was 20. She tried to make this years ago, and I think it approached a couple premium cable nets. And it just, at the time, it wasn't what people were looking for. So it just goes to show how arduous and attractive yeah. the process of making a doc can be but also very reward, rewarding when you know we got into Sundance and were able to call together finishing funds from some incredible companies like Whitewater and XTR and Level Forward and some very generous individuals who believed in the film we ended up premiering it at Sundance and then we had a sales agent, um, Josh Braun and his team at Submarine, and they start fielding calls and fielding offers. And Discovery Plus was not really known at the time for docs, but the team there, Egal and Jessica, really sold us on how much they believed in this and wanted to put it forth as an awards contender. It... it sort of was one of the first films. There was one other film called Francesco, which actually looks at Pope Francis that had premiered on, on the service. And Pedro knew that filmmaker, Jenny Well, and checked with them and just got glowing reviews about how wonderful the team was to work with. And so we went for it. And since then, a few filmmakers and production companies have come to me to ask about that experience. And, you know, fortunately we've had a very positive one. So it's just yet one more place where we can set up premium unscripted. You say four years. It's so fascinating because you you've done the reality side too, the same, same as I have, you know, I had the, the two filmmakers who did the last blockbuster and, you know, heard their story. They, it took them four years to make the last blockbuster and Elizabeth Lowe, who did Stray, came on and mm-hmm. talked about the two years it took for her to make Stray. And I, I you know, for, for you and I, when we do reality, sometimes that can be a quick turnaround. What is your mentality? How is it that you approach a doc, you know, when it, that patience or that kind of push to make a documentary versus that different mentality of a reality show? I had worked with filmmakers and production companies in the past that had a singular voice. There was a brand in which you knew what it was. There was sometimes a, you know, a celebrity fronting it or at the heart of it. And in this scenario, after having worked as a sort of a, you know, a mercenary for for years as a hired gun to run someone's development, I finally wanted to be able to do something that would allow me to collaborate with a wide array of storytellers where there wasn't a singular voice and that I could partner with filmmakers or directors who might tell completely different stories about different subjects, but still fell under the category of being a compelling story that I felt needed to be told. And so when we take something on, 
unlike most production companies who pitch something and then say, you know, it either sells or doesn't. And then you say, well, you live or die by that. Sorry, we did a great job, but I don't, you know, I don't think we can take this out for another year. We'll put it in the deep freezer and then cryogenically unfreeze it uh, when the time is right, when the market changes, when some new service launches. And now that's like every other month. But uh, <laughs> I think for, for a lot of producers, they just, they, they partner with the right company and then they take it out and they see what the outcome is. And it's either a good one or a bad one. For, for us, I make it clear from Jump that even if the market isn't ready for it, even if a platform doesn't want to fund it outright, that I'm going to dedicate myself and our team to drumming up the money, not from our own coffers, but from relationships that I built throughout the years, right. to get something independently financed. And sometimes that's through grants. Sometimes it's through equity. It usually takes a lot longer than it would if Netflix or HBO or Discovery Plus were to write a check up front and say, here it is, we believe in your vision, go make it. Yeah. Uh, but it gets made nine times out of 10, it's going to get made. And that is the commitment that we put forth knowing that it's probably going to be three or four years. Some of them end Oof. up being less, uh, yeah. more, but yeah, it's, it's a long gestation period. Unlike what we know from producing unscripted and yeah. reality that you might be able to crank out. Yeah. You mentioned uh, a second ago, new streamers, CNN Plus is going gonna, is gonna to be happening. It literally feels like we're getting new streamers every month. It's um, so exciting. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's really, especially when it's tied to a, a brand like CNN that is already recognizable. I think it's harder for the streamers that didn't necessarily have a built-in audience or a recognizable brand to then try and launch in this highly competitive market, you know, could be case in point. Yeah. And, and ultimately they're probably all going to be part of a larger conglomerate as you know, the great consolidation continues to happen. Right. At what point does I'm excited about CNN plus we're already talking to the execs there about something. And I think it, it could absolutely coexist alongside HBO max, right. some of the other, Warner Turner own properties, but at what point is Discovery Plus, HBO Max, and you know all the others? At some point, I think they just become one, right? After the merger is approved, and yep. I think what we're seeing now is a lot like what happened with the record business, the the music industry, twenty some years ago. And ultimately, it doesn't necessarily end up being a bad thing. I think there are more opportunities now than we had. Well, certainly four or five years ago, um, when I started the company three and a half years ago, there were a lot of projects that we were developing, especially in the limited run doc series category that felt like, I mean, listen, it was, it was Netflix or nothing. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and that's no way to, to, to program rebel hearts ended up in that category. And so we ended up doing it on our own. I think we probably would have had a much easier time setting that up as a multi-part series, which it could have been, there was just so much material to work with, especially when you look at 50 years of archival uh, right. 60s on, 
but at the time it just, it wasn't. And so now to be able to have those additional platforms where we can, where, where we can potentially strike up a conversation that might lead to them funding it outright is exciting. You got a zillion streamers, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Discovery Plus, Paramount Plus, plus your cable, plus your network, plus Facebook Watch and Snapchat. Is it better for the consumer? Choice is great, but don't forget they've also got Twitter and Instagram and all these other forms yeah. of media. Is there so much content that that like we're almost overwhelming people with choice? Yeah, I mean, right now it does feel like a, a media free-for-all. It does feel like there's just a, an abundance of content that can be overwhelming. I mean, there are probably several series that are queued up in different platforms that I just haven't had a chance to watch. And I think, you know, I, I eventually will get around to them, but you miss a little bit of that, I guess it's that monoculture that we used to have growing up, right? Yeah. Where yes, that's a good. You, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, you knew that everybody was going to be watching one particular show on one particular night because that's when it was being served up. And yeah, sure, you could before DVRs, you could uh, record it on your v VHS or VCR, but you weren't then a part of the conversation, right? And so. Yeah. If you missed the premiere, you know, or the the season finale of Lost, you're screwed, <laughs> right? Like, good luck, yeah. like yeah. avoiding spoiler alerts. But we don't have that anymore, and so I think now it's about, you know, everything's on demand. Everything is when you want to consume it. You know, I think Netflix was smart, for better or for worse. I, I think they were smart to do the top ten. Yes, very smart. People, what other people are watching and saying, okay, very this is smart. thing that someone's going to talk about. And I'm not sure how that feeds the algorithm or what that Agreed. means. Agreed. Yeah, but but... Is my top 10 the same as your top 10? Yeah, yeah. interesting. I don't know. Yeah, because I don't know either. Sea Beasts. Uh, oh, <laughs> do you want to you transition and talk <laughs> about Sexy Beasts? I, 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 I had to watch part of it. I, I Gosh, I probably shouldn't say this, but I, I couldn't, I have two young kids. And so it's so rare that, you know, we get to watch something interrupted. I started it and then watched a little bit. And I was like, God, who are these people behind this? And then I was yeah. like, there's no way I'm actually going to make it through a half hour because my one and a half year old, you know, was uh, he, just woke one, up from, yeah. Your one and, and a half year old is going to be scarred for life. He didn't, I didn't, don't, don't worry. He didn't get to see it. But you know, these are the times where my wife and I get to watch TV and I was just like, all right, well, I, I, I gotta know what they look like. So I forwarded to the end and got the reveals and it was worth it just for the reveals alone. I didn't feel like I needed to watch a full half hour in order to appreciate it. I was disappointed when I saw the trip at first, when I saw like the headline, I thought it was a furry dating show. <laughs> and then <laughs> you're like, there's, there's a chance that there's <laughs> I was like, I was like, finally, someone did a furry dating show. Yes. And then I was like, oh, yeah. it's just, oh, it's like someone saw the mass singer and they saw love is blind and was like, oh, let's combine <laughs> these two shows. And I was to, like, to ultimately, you know, get to the age old question is love blind and can you look beyond the exterior and and find something more meaningful which i think 
is a theme in a lot of unscripted programming right now. And a theme just as we're uh, the universe of single people are drawn to these apps where it's all about, you know, what you look like yes. and what you want to present. I think people are growing tired of it and want to find something more meaningful in their relationships. This I'm is a, so glad I'm not out there on this. I'm screen. really <laughs> glad that we're delving into this, Ethan. I think that um, this is a really important conversation for us yeah. to have. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that Michael Bolton is helping other celebrities find love on Celebrity Dating Game. I think mm -hmm. that, that is admirable. <laughs> Or, or well, how do you feel about some of the, I mean, it seems like everything's either about IP or about, I mean, especially in, in the doc world, but in, so, or access really. Yes. We'll get back to that. But how do you feel about some of these iconic brands and franchises now being turned into game shows? Like I just read oh. Frogger today. Frogger. I just talked to a buddy the other day who was uh, interviewing for Frogger. Yeah. So I mean, what, what role? Uh, yeah. um, the rock or the yeah, car. Well, Frogger. And then you have Uno. We can talk about the shit show that Slip and Slide turned into. Yeah. Quite literally. Uh, yeah. Mousetrap. Oh, I didn't hear about that one. Fox is going to do Mousetrap. Okay. Um, I'm waiting for operation. Have they, has someone mm -hmm. done operation? Uh, yeah. So look, I think that, you know, everybody wants IP because you wrap, I mean, it's the same as why people are doing, you know, Transformers and every comic book is being sure. you know, turned into a movie. You know, it's just easier the for Marvel people to wrap universe their heads expanding into other universes. It's yeah. Like, it's yeah. action figures. It's more board games. It's other properties that you can sell and it sells overseas easier because people know it. It's right. just more dollars, you know, now, Will Frogger translate into a good television show? I, I don't know. Isn't it just going to be like Wipeout? Like, isn't that really what it's going to be? Wipeout, but... Yeah, but Wipeout was a hit. So I think, you know, networks are looking sure. for anything that's going to bring yeah. those types yeah, of Yeah, 100%. You know, I mean, holy moly. Thank you, Steph Curry. Great job. When I heard about it, I was like, really? You're going to do a, a miniature golf show on a network and then boom, they took. I've that. seen a little bit with my three and a half year old and it's fun. Yeah. It, that's good. Family fun. I understand that, why it's entertaining, but you're right. If you had said, yeah, someone's going to pitch a mini golf show on steroids. I'd be like, no, no way. Why, why would we watch that? Look at Lego masters. Mm -hmm. right? Like Lego masters wasn't even that huge of a hit overseas. But it, it is a phenomenal piece of IP, and yeah. they've done a great job. Endemol Shine has done a great job yep. building off that IP. And, yeah. you know, Will Arnett is the perfect host yeah. for yeah. the show. Listen, whether you're talking about premium doc or uh, blockbuster television formats, in this day and age, I don't think there's any such thing as overpackaging. And, and what I mean by that is it's so hard to cut through the noise and clutter that you have to do something that's gonna give you your best shot at getting it made. And if that means attaching a, a larger company or a company who has more cred in that particular space or that genre, or bringing on the celebrity EP or trying to book, you know, if it is a game show, I guess it's, you know, maybe 
talking to the agencies to try yeah. to get an expression of interest from some A-list talent. But it's just, it's everything has to be built and packaged to the hilt in order for it to have a, a decent chance of, of getting funded and distributed. Yeah. In the doc world, right? In documentaries, yeah. which is your forte, how important is finding that A-list filmmaker? I think half our slate is dedicated to filmmakers who do have a, they have a reputation of making incredible films that speak for themselves. And so there's certainly an advantage to walking in the door with somebody whose last film was Emmy nominated or Oscar nominated. Now it's tricky between Emmy and, and Oscar because so many of the uh, Emmy doc categories are sort of crossing over, yeah. especially as it pertains to multi-part. But to answer your question, I also really, I think it's important to invest both financially and in terms of just hope and belief in those up and coming filmmakers. And so the other half of our slate is with people who you may not know of yet, but we're hoping you will know of with this next project or, you know, maybe to beyond it, but I, I don't discriminate in that regard. It's not, I'm not going to say, okay, that's a great story of great access. I love the tape you shot, but you're just not a big enough name. We're going to have to partner you up. I, I, I think that's, that's very short-sighted. Part of why I launched Anchor was to create, create an environment where directors, filmmakers, storytellers felt comfortable knowing that I was going to support, we were going to support their vision. And I'm not a director. I, maybe at some point, my second act, I'll look to direct something, but I'd rather collaborate with those filmmakers to create something with them that is, again, a vision that they have that isn't watered down by five other people's visions. You know, eventually you're, you're always going to have the network chime in. Some of the networks who I'm working with right now have been incredible about supporting that. HBO is just, I've never experienced the amount of support and belief that we are getting from a network because they trust the filmmaker and they trust that process. I can't talk much about that project now, but hopefully soon I will. It's with director Aaron Lee Carr, who uh, has a long-standing relationship with yeah, them. Right. And that does, it goes a long way. That said, I'm also working with a director at MSNBC who doesn't have a lot of doc experience, but had incredible access. And so he agreed to be partnered up with somebody who does have more of a pedigree in news and documentaries. And so together they're going to be co-directing. And that's one way. I don't know that we'd be able to sell it off of the team that just had the original director at the helm. I think it gave the network uh, more confidence to know that there was somebody else who was going to be working with us in the day-to-day -day execution. I want to ask you about the Dan Rather yeah. Documentary. Yeah. That was announced uh, a little bit back. I started out my career in local sports and news. So yeah. when I saw That's that great. this was one of your projects, I was really excited. And obviously rather is a Titan, you know, somebody who anyone who started in news or anybody who's in news looks up to a guy like Dan rather. Tell me a little bit about this project, how it came about and 
what it's like to uh, be doing a project uh, about a guy like Dan Rather. Yeah, I mean, Dan Rather, as he's approaching his 90th birthday this October and still going strong, you know, where I think he's he's reached a brand new audience of millennials and Gen Z through the new platforms, right? I follow him on Twitter yeah. and he's good. He's great. Yeah. He's good on Twitter. We did an interview with, with Andy Cohen where he had worked with him years ago and they have a sort of long-standing friendship. And he said, uh, you know, during these difficult trying times where we're trying to make sense of the news and this just this dizzying cycle, Gen Z needs somebody who they can look to, to, to make sense of it. And so in some ways, Dan Rather is their, it's their daddy, right? Like the, the daddy of Gen Z who can, you know, be that beacon of hope and understanding uh, during incredibly tumultuous times. Yeah, the opportunity came around through Jeff Hassler, who's at Original Productions, who again, I've known for years. He was, he's actively creating a premium doc division for Original Productions which is a Fremantle company. He knew that that's what I had an expertise in. And so um, we partnered up. And I guess this is one of those things. Somebody read that announcement and just said, can you explain to me how many companies <laughs> it takes to, to make these things? And I said, well, <laughs> it is almost like the, the <laughs> how many producers does it take to screw in a light bulb? When you look at the credits for The Bachelor, there's like 10 executive producers. All right. Well, that makes me feel better because yeah, this is a lone doc that uh, has four companies behind it. Anchor being one of them. Wavelength, some incredible, incredible partners, uh, Jen Westfall and Joe Plummer, who I've gotten to know well, um, came on. Then they brought on Frank Marshall of Kennedy Marshall on. And, you know, ultimately, hopefully all of this will be helping with a sale. But for me, it was really just this opportunity to work with a newsman who I grew up with, who was one of the the great legends and one of the you know last newscasters standing, who represented a, a particular type of truth telling. I think that we just don't really see anymore in the age of fake news. And so, at this current moment in history, when the idea of what is the truth is being challenged like never before he came to this saying, how do we preserve and encourage the kind of journalism that holds power accountable? And that to me is, that, that has not been explored in a film during you know, a post-Trump era where again, we don't know what's real and what's not. And so to have somebody like Dan, a first draft historian yeah. making sense of what we're seeing now and comparing yeah. it back to what he saw 30, 40, 50 years ago. I mean, this film, I, you know, I think it was relevant two years ago when we were trying to get it financed, but um, when the pandemic hit and we found ourselves in the midst of 2020 and 2020 started to look a lot like 1968 with civil unrest and the, the, racial reckoning that has started to take place post George Floyd, history repeating itself in many ways, 50 some years later. And so he is somebody who's able to make sense of those events in ways that a lot of us just can't fathom. You know, and now you look at January 6th, the insurrection, sure. and this whole push now to rewrite history by the 
by the Republicans. I feel like this documentary is so crucial, almost as a catalog, almost as a statement of what fact is. Like, it's almost important to do it as soon as possible before history starts to get erased. I'm glad you, you see that. That's that's exactly how we feel. And we're so lucky to be telling that story right now with wonderful director One Nine behind this. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, One Nine, who did a tremendous job for people who don't know, Nas Ilmatic. He was the director of that, which is, I believe it's on Netflix now. Which Yeah, I saw that see. premiere at Tribeca and um, had been following his career track ever since. You know, he, he really has brought a unique voice to this that I think is going to make a film that feels very different from your average biopic. And his producer, Jessica Sharif, an incredible um, editor who we have on this, Mari Kiko Gonzalez, who I had been referred to by another director who I worked with at VH1 years ago. And it just so happened that she was available and fell in love with this story. And pretty much everyone who has come on board has talked about the power and influence that that Dan rather had on them growing up or currently as you know yeah. sort of in his third act. Yeah. So really excited for for people to see that one. I feel like Gen X is in an interesting spot. We grew up understanding and seeing news when it was kind of we got the newspaper, we read Newsweek or Time. Sports Illustrated, like that was understood to be the facts, yeah. right? And then we were trans we transitioned into blogs and websites, and then we saw kind of the death of the newspaper, the death of weekly magazines. I don't get any of them anymore. Yeah, you know, you're I, reading a headline on Twitter from before it's news. Yeah. Somehow that you know circulates through Facebook and all the other social, and you know a lot of people don't actually look to see who is publishing this and who's writing it, whether there is any credibility behind it. I, I was doing local news, you know, in the early 2000s, end of, you know, you know, like 1999, 1998. Okay. But, you know, we were taught, you don't have opinions. You, you are, I remember getting screamed at in my very first year um, doing news because I had changed. I was like rewriting something, like just a little simple summary. And I wanted to make it. Oh yeah, it's not an op-ed, <laughs> Ethan. I just changed some wording to make it sound what I thought to be a little bit more exciting. And my producer screamed at me. I was like a AP or something, and I will never forget that yeah, because news next... was hard news, and there were there were real rules. Those rules are gone. When I was doing news in West Virginia, I remember it was the only time where I ever apologized for making a mistake, and it was like the it was the most honest mistake ever, and it was because I went with a source. Oh, uh, um, uh, West Virginia was looking for a brand new basketball coach. And I had gotten uh, a rumor from a very trusted source and gone live at uh, 11 o'clock the night before that Bob Huggins, who's now, you know, the coach at West Virginia, was taking the job from Cincinnati. I'd gotten it from a source. I'm from Cincinnati. Gotten a, a reliable source had told me. You and were doing the TMZ thing before, I was, <laughs> before they were. <laughs> And it turned out that uh, that was false. Oh, uh, wow. False. Yeah. I, I, I was wrong. I was wrong. Was and your, so I took- You retract the statement. You said yes. an apology. You got fired. But the thing is, is no one does that anymore. 
People are just like, you're like, ah, it's no big deal. I had to apologize. I did the whole, like, I'm really sorry. I had a trusted source. Like, you know, nobody cares anymore. It's just like, ah, I was wrong. Big, big deal. And they kind of move on. And I feel like that's why I'm excited that you're doing that project. Well, I, I am really excited to get this to an audience. It, it's a really inspiring film. And I think it's going to find a place in sort of the great canon of, of news films uh, or films about news people that deserves to be heard. What advice do you have for young filmmakers, aspiring producers who are, they think they have that access or that story that quote unquote, nobody's heard this. I tell them to follow it. Yeah. Trust your gut, get out there. You're going to make some mistakes. It may not end up being the thing that wins you a Peabody or a yeah, an Oscar, but it is going to be the thing that gets you into this world and immerses you in the unpredictable nature of documentary. And I think there's so many people who talk about wanting to do something or looking at a story and saying that would make a great doc. You know, you're at a party, you're always hearing yeah. people pitch you ideas, but yeah. to have the the perseverance and the courage to get out there and follow that story. You don't know where it's going to take you and it may end up being the thing that consumes six years of your life, but you're going to be a better person for it. And perhaps that's the story that is going to affect the world and impact people in a way that you never could have imagined. So I, I really, I just, I encourage young filmmakers, I encourage people who are aspiring filmmakers to get out there and just get their hands dirty. I like that. Um, Steve, I, 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 got, I, got a call, I got a question for you. You've done so much throughout your career. What is the one show that you had the, not even that you're most proud of, that you just look back on and say, that was the golden age of making television? Oh, I was because I it's an easy answer what I'm most proud of. Uh, oh, I want to hear that too. Okay, the one I'm most proud of is Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Sure. Um, what a huge impact that had. Yeah, it, yeah. I mean that you know look. Incredible. It, yeah, it, it was. That just yeah, I, like I always say, it's like to do what we're able to do in terms of telling stories. To be able to do that and know that at the end of the week, there's a family that has a new home. There's was never a better feeling. And I always tell people that I came on that show as a cynic. I was the ultimate, I was not a super fan at all. Yep. I came on and I was excited to do a network show and a show that my parents would watch. And, but the first time I saw a family fall into tears and I'm sitting in the control room with a bunch of other <laughs> grown men crying. Uh, they were all like, you're in, aren't you? You know, and, and you're in like you, you drink the Kool-Aid and before you know it, you're in. And still then keep in touch with Ty Pennington. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The, I still say to today, you know, 10 years later, he's the best talent that I've ever worked with. Yeah. I mean, had an amazing, has an amazing ability to connect with other human beings. You could tell him the story of a family and within five minutes he would connect with them. I was in the show with some recommendations, what to watch or what to read. Could be anything, unscripted, documentary, film, 
whatever you got. Anything you've uh, seen recently or read recently that you want to recommend? In terms of what I'm reading, I mean, let's see what's on the bookshelf here. Oh, Escapist Stuff, A Good Year. I think this was... Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. This was about a guy who uh, decides to say fuck it, and he uh, he goes and runs a vineyard for a few years, which always seems appealing. Um, and then... <laughs> Uh, this other book that we're currently developing into something called The Storm is Upon Us. It's by this uh, author and journalist, Mike Rothschild. And we're trying to move away from the cue of it all, but put a very right. unbiased lens on sort of the divide that's happening with families right now as we're seeing people become radicalized. Ethan, thank you so much for the time, man. Steve, great to talk to you. That's going to do it for another episode of No Script, No Problem. For everyone listening, please remember to subscribe, download, and rate the show with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. You can also email any questions that you have to no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.